Now let's listen to the word of God, beginning with verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Without any doubt, the mystery of our religion is great. He was revealed in flesh, vindicated in spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among Gentiles, believed in throughout the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will renounce the faith by praying, by paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared with a hot iron. They forbid marriage, demand abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created by God, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected provided it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by God's word and by prayer. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I know other things have eclipsed the news this week, uh, but the week began with us talking about uh, climate change, the uh, impact on the environment, how that, in terms of, is threatening the future of our children. And one of the unfortunate, I think, sometimes side debates, uh, though it's important, but often makes people polarized, is this idea around meat, red meat. And of course, you have some folks who are saying, you know, you'll have to take my hamburger away the same day you take away my gun, you know. So there's people who, will, who are very upset about that. And then there's other people who have extreme positions that, you know, say that we all should be, should be vegan. Uh, and what's interesting, even, you know, regardless of what a politician says, there was one particular politician last week who is a vegetarian. But when he's campaigning in Iowa, he's frying pork, okay. <laughs> there was a picture of him frying pork. Now, um, I, I have a disclaimer, okay. I made meatballs this week. I had a nice lamb chop and a hamburger. Okay, so, and I ate fish and chicken as well and some turkey. But again, all right. So I I I, uh, I do uh, enjoy my occasional red meat. Now, the truth of the matter is, we eat too much of it. Right? It's, it's not good for us. Uh, you know, so much of our our heart disease and even some cancers are caused by eating too much red meat. And I know I grew up in. I grew up in, in uh, first in West Virginia, where I don't know you, we just fried it in West Virginia, so you didn't really know what you were. It could just, as long as it was fried, it was good, right? So my mother even fried vegetables, which so <laughs> was such a bad idea. Right? Um, um, but also, you know, too much red meat, it's bad for you. Um, cows are bad for the environment. Corn, too much corn is all—it's not the best use of our of our resources. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's, that's important that also to remember is that we are predators, right? We have our eyes in the front of our head. Now, we're involved in a significant extinction moment right now. And part of the problem is there's just too many of us. So many of us doing so many things, uh, using so much, that's put a real pressure, it's put a real pressure on, on the planet. But the fossil record 
as well as you know when humans started writing things down. But even before humans were writing, the fossil record shows us that everywhere humans migrated, lots of stuff died. Okay, matter of fact, you can follow extinction patterns, um, particularly during the Ice Age and all those time periods. You can follow extinction patterns, for instance, in this country, by when humans showed up. Humans show up, animals die. Okay, so that's just part of who we are. Now, one of the things that's interesting in the creation narrative, we didn't read that today, but it's implied in the Timothy passage. Prior to the fall of humanity, it is most likely that humans did not eat meat. At least that's the picture that's portrayed. Okay, now again, it's a highly stylized account. But the rabbis, for instance, some of the rabbis actually teach that, you know, before Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't eat meat. And that's why in some very observant Jewish communities, uh, to be kosher is to be vegetarian, because part of what they're trying to do is to get back to the original original state. And, you know, one of the things that, that this idea of the destruction of the world and creation is related to sin, I think was greatly illustrated in, in the movie Noah. I don't know how many of you saw I think it was 2014. It's been five years or so since that movie came out. Mel Gibson, not Mel Gibson, no, not Mel Gibson, uh, Russell Crowe starred as Noah. And people didn't know how quite to take that movie, in part because a lot of it was based on Jewish rabbinical teaching and books of, or writings that we don't really have access to as Christians. But it was really faithful to the Jewish understanding of what the Noah event was about. And there's this amazing speech, because if you remember the film, uh, Noah, uh, the world is totally destroyed, even before the water comes, by humans. Humans are brutish, they're cruel, they kill just to kill. Matter of fact, Noah and his family do, do not eat animals, so they're still observing the initial vision of Adam and Eve. And um, Noah, at one point, one of the subtext of the story is Noah doesn't want his children to reproduce once they've left because he thinks humanity is who destroyed this world. And if God's going to restore the world, we need to make sure humans um, don't do it again. And he says this. Now, he's retelling the creation story to his children. And he says this. Now, the whole world was full of living beings, everything that creeps, everything that crawls, and every beast that walks upon the ground. And it was good. It was all good. There was light and air and water and soil, all clean and unspoiled. There were plants and fish and fowl and beasts, each after their own kind, all part of the greater whole, all in their place. All was in balance. It was a paradise, a jewel, in the Creator's palm. Then the Creator made man, and by his side woman, father and mother of us all. He gave them a choice. Follow the temptation of darkness or hold on to the blessing of light. But they ate from the forbidden fruit. Their innocence was extinguished. And so, for the ten generations since Adam, sin has walked within us. Brother against brother, nation against nation, man against creation. We murdered each other. We broke the world. We did this. Man did this. Everything that was beautiful, everything that was good, we shattered. So there is a sense that rather than tend the garden, 
we have exploited the garden. Right? That's, that's part of the human story. And so there is this tendency for us to act as if we hate creation, okay? as creation is merely a thing for us to be used. Now, the other temptation, okay, so there's, a, there's, a, there's this temptation for humanity to, file, to defile creation, and we've done it. The other temptation is to think that the world is, a, is bad. Okay? There's always a religious impulse to think that the world is bad. And one of the reasons that you sometimes do that is because your experience has been bad, right? I don't know, I mean, I've talked, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if any of you are watching the Ken Burns history of, of country music, and it's, it's really interesting because it resonates. Uh, I mean, that's the music I first heard as, as a child. And so much of the, of the early country music really came out of desperate circumstances. Uh, the Bakersfield sound, okay, which Merle Haggard, uh, Buck Owens, those men were sons of the Dust Bowl. Buck Owens tells a story where they had to leave Texas because everything was, was wiped out. He said, if we hadn't left Texas, we'd have starved. And he has a memory being broken down in Arizona with his parents, his aunt and uncles, and they had one toothbrush with half the brushes missing to share among all the kids. And so part of why in some country music, you know, mountain music, bluegrass music, why do they sing about heaven so much? <laughs> okay, why do they sing about heaven so much? Because they knew what it meant to be poor. They knew what it meant to have family members die too young because either they couldn't get medical treatment or they worked in the coal mines. Or they didn't have enough to eat. So there's always a temptation in religious circles to, to talk about things will be better away from this land. And, and even sometimes without meaning to, by talking about how important the spiritual is or how wonderful heaven is, it, it denigrates this world. I mean, that's part of the problem that is talked about here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. By the end of the first century, okay, Jesus, the Jesus movement was young, right? But there already were people who were saying, you know, this world is evil. Okay, don't get married, okay, because you know, sex is evil, procreation is is evil. There are certain things you shouldn't eat because they're defiled. And the Christian Church, uh, already in the New Testament, but even more strongly in the second century century says no to this. No. We are reminded that even though the world is broken, okay, and humanity has broken it. Right? Um, <laughs> and matter of fact, Kurt Vonnegut one time said, another flaw in human character is everybody wants to build, but nobody wants to do any maintenance. <laughs> okay. So in other words, we want stuff. Okay. We want to take, you know, as much stuff as we can get, but we're not very good at replenishing. Right? Okay. Um, and, and, and even though this is part of the human story, okay, the defilement of creation, this rebellion against God, all this is tied together. Even though the world has been damaged by humanity, the underlying truth is God created it and it's good. Just because something has been defaced, just because something has been broken, doesn't mean it's bad. 
And that was one of the great messages of, of Christianity. At some levels, it's a little crazy message, right? If you're a slave, for instance, and a lot of the early Christians were slaves, and you have no freedom or very limited freedom, it would seem like everything around you is bad and evil. But Christianity says, no, first of all, it started out by saying, no, you're good. Okay. God loved you. And you may be a slave here on earth, but in heaven, and in Christ, not even in heaven, but in Christ you are free. So there's already this thing in Christianity where it's reframing reality. In Christ there is no free or slave. In Christ there is no male or female. As a female, you may be treated as a second-class citizen in Roman society, but in Christ you are equal. Jews and Gentiles, there is none. There's no racial, ethnic division in heaven. We're all one. And that's part of the good, that's part of the restoration of the good earth, the good creation. And in spite of what's wrong with the world, how we respond to beauty gives us a hint and reminds us that this is a good world. Um, Hans von Balthasar, I think one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century, said, every experience of beauty points to eternity. I had a friend, uh, when their child first saw the Grand Canyon, he was five or six. And so, you know, it brings him up to the end, and, you know, you can just imagine how big his eyes were. And the first thing he, he did was raise his hands and go, thank you, God. My friend was not Pentecostal. He was a Texas lawyer. Right? <laughs> so it was just the immediate response. I remember the first time my oldest son saw the ocean. Okay? He was um, just two. I, well, I, he'd seen the ocean earlier, but I guess the first time, you know, he was kind of, you know what I mean. And you know, he's we're walking hand in hand, and you know, I kind of let go of him. He just takes off running along the water, just laughing, okay? pure joy. Now, eventually, I did say, oh, I should go get him. Okay, but, all right, but, you know, I was watching. It was just pure joy because of the beauty and the magnificence. And so, even though we have done horrible things to this planet and continue to do horrible things to this planet, and as Christians, we need to care about that. But even when things are all messed up, there's beauty. I was talking about, you know, a couple, about a month ago, I went to West Virginia. And, you know, you see what strip mining does in certain places, but then you turn the corner and there's the majesty again. So the strip mine is awful, okay? But it, but, but then you see it hasn't gotten everything. You're reminded how beautiful these, this earth is. John of Damascus said that the whole earth is a living face of Christ. And that brings us to this idea of the mystery of faith. Because the goodness of creation, the beauty of creation circles back around to the first part of this passage. What is the mystery of faith? What is this incredible news that God's been up to that's revealed in our time? That's really what they're saying here. What is the mysterium of God? Well, it is that God became human. Now, I've gotten into this fact with uh, these some very reformed people um, <laughs> In response to some things I post on my on my um, 
on the resident exile site. And uh, they take issue with me because I, periodically I put an icon or a painting of, of Christ. And some hyper-reformed people believe that uh, any picture of God is an is idol. It's a breaking the second commandment. John Calvin, if you go to a traditional reformed church, somebody that comes from you know, a, church, a reformed church, a Presbyterian church, a congregational church that was born, that was built in the 18th century, uh, if it hasn't been changed, it's white. Okay, no pictures, no crosses, no symbols. Now. Why the Puritans did it, why the hyper-Calvinists did it, is probably not the right reason. Okay, and, and what Calvin understood, his followers didn't quite understand. But why it's okay for us to have a picture of Jesus? Okay, all right. Now it's always dangerous, okay, to make a picture of Jesus because we have a tendency to make Jesus in our own image, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. Okay, for instance, if we think Jesus only looks like us then that's a very bad thing. Okay. I've told you a story. I was at a funeral at a church in Kenya, or, I'm sorry, Ghana, and uh, the whole front of the church was taken up by this big Scottish-looking Jesus. Okay. All right. I don't know what Jesus looked like, but I know he didn't look like a Scotsman. All right. I am sure of that. And I'm telling my friend, I go, <laughs> who, who's, uh, who was from Ghana, I go, why? Because <laughs> you know, actually Jesus looks more like you than he, he probably looked more like you than he looks like me, okay? And he said, well, that's what the missionaries told us he looked like. I said, okay, well, I said the missionaries were wrong. Said, right. Okay. But we can make, we can, we can look at a picture of Jesus because he became flesh. He became one of us. John of Damascus again. In former times, God who is without form or body could never be depicted. But now when God is seen in the flesh conversing with humans, I make an image of the God whom I see. I do not worship matter. I worship the creator of matter who became matter for my sake. Okay? It's an interesting translation of the Greek. I don't worship the created thing. I don't worship matter. I worship the one who created matter, who became matter, all right? The creature, or the, the creator became a creature. So Jesus really is our brother. He really is our friend. He really knows what it's like to be human and all that goes with that. And in the resurrection and the ascension, the mystery of our faith, he takes all that humanity with him into the very heart of God. So, what that means is not only that because God became human, it, it sanctifies the created world, and that's a whole sermon in and of itself. It's, a, it's 12 sermons, okay? But because he took on our nature, that's part of why we are made whole as well. The beauty of creation in its greatest manifestation is the beauty of God in you as you are. Simone Bay once said that a beautiful woman looks in the mirror and thinks that's her and she may be right. Okay, and Simone Bay said, but an ugly woman, and Simone Bay was 
was not a model. Okay, she was a very plain woman. She said, an ugly woman looks in the mirror and knows that's not her. Okay, but I would even go and say that <clears throat> any of us who look in the mirror, if we properly see ourselves as God sees us, would see that there's something beautiful there. The crown of God's creation is you and I. That's not to make us proud, it's to make us humble and grateful. I remember one time talking to someone and they talked about how they they went through on and on about how awful they were. And, um, And I finally said to them, I said, gosh, our God is horrible. Well, the person, you know, was the person just because they were from, they were very they were very pious. They were they were, they thought themselves as very devout, and they looked at me and said, "How dare you say that God's awful?" Well, he really messed up with you, according to you. And it, it, the person was kind of discombobulated. I go, maybe it's time that you start thinking about yourself the way God thinks about you. Maybe you need to surrender your own broken opinions about who you are and say yes. Because obviously, the God of the universe thinks you must be amazing because he died for you. And he's willing to be patient while you say these stupid things. And she laughed. The world's broken, but it's good. You and I are broken, but we are redeemed. And we are good because we are in Christ. And Christ is in us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.
Because only when there is a hole within us, it's only when we realize that we have sinned, are we open to be dependent on the mercy of God. Now, I'm not particularly interested in speculating on the necessity of sin, like our Dutch forefathers and mothers did. All right, That's not my particular interest. But what I do see in these difficult passages, the discussion of the nature of sin, the high cost of idolatry, is that in the end, mercy wins. The people of Israel ultimately repented. Saw the persecutor, persecutor becomes Paul the Apostle. You and I in our own little worlds, whatever we are tempted, whatever our fates were going to be, we have said yes to the grace of God, and you and I are now agents, representatives, vessels of the mercy of God, wherever we find ourselves. That is not only good news, that is amazing news. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand together and proclaim what we believe.